part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, but he is out today at a wedding. So, not his. He's been married for like 30 years. Dude is old. (laughs) <laughs> got a kid. Hey, hey, he's like my age. Come on. <laughs> Cut us some slack. He's got Cut a kid slack. like a, his kid's like my age. Mm. No, his kid's only <laughs> seven. He's not that old. He's just a little She old. just started picketing and stuff. Okay? She did. She's just getting started. That's right. Yeah, she's already been to a picket line. So very cool. <laughs> uh, appreciate everybody in the chat. Uh, UAW51 joined. Uh, Jenny says, we need unions again. Marco says, UAW Local 1700 here. Uh, peace and love you all. We're tired of being bullied and jerked around. Absolutely. Miss Anonymous says, Fain is a badass. The American people support him. Um, the uh, uh, Mike says, hi. I work local 600 Dearburn uh, truck plant and wanted to say that I've been at UAW and working for Ford for 26 and a half years. Sean Fain is a breath, breath of fresh air. Uh, super glad to hear that. Um, Mike says, our pensions should be our pensions and not cut when we qualify for Social Security. Agree. We put in our time and money and should get full Social Security and full pensions when we retire. Uh, Darwin Claus uh, says, Sean Fain for president. I agree. I would support that. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful. Labor Party. That's what we need. Oh, yeah. A Labor Party. And, oh, and speaking of the, so Darwin Claus, I don't know, like, how facetious you were being about Sean Fain for president or how how much you agree about a, a Labor Party. But there was a Labor Party that was started in the 90s, and it was a very interesting experiment. Um, it had a lot of backing from a lot of unions, and um, they were, you know, they didn't really see any national success. They had some mixed success locally and at, you know, in some state uh, some state parties, but um, it's a it was a really fascinating experience, and you know I think it's something that union members and and people who want labor friendly politicians should seek to learn from, and so um, in pursuit of that, uh, we interviewed. I'm forgetting his name, but he was like the national organizer for the Labor Party back in the '90s. So uh, if you want to check out uh, you know stuff about the Labor Party, then uh, uh, then check out our back catalog and. Listen to that interview. Miss Anonymous says, I'd vote for him. Speaking about Sean Fain, absolutely, I would. And all the great clips that Joe's been putting together. There's so many shorts and stuff now. Yes, absolutely. We get to the juicy stuff. Yeah, Joe, our video and graphics guy, is awesome. Um, And he does a lot of good stuff. And we're on TikTok, like I said. Uh, He does really good TikToks. So definitely uh, check check out everything that he's putting out. And he does freelance uh, video and audio work too, and graphic work. So if you need anything from him, Joe Harrison Composer at gmail.com. Joe Harrison Composer 
does amazing thumbnails and stuff. Great thumbnails. And realize how much of an art that is, truly is. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> uh, I heard Adam is actually 80 years old, says Maximilian Alvarez. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. He's got uh, the knowledge. He's I got mean, the brain of an 80-year-old. <laughs> it, wait, never mind. I take that one back. <laughs> that didn't work at all. Um, so, hey, while we're waiting for uh, while we're waiting to talk to Alex, um, John Fetterman, this is from The Insider, John Fetterman says J.D. Vance is more focused on, quote, silly performance art than trying to pass the railway safety bill they've introduced uh, together. And um, I had this lined up to talk about uh, before I saw Max in the chat, but it's funny, um, you know, but uh, but Max, I wonder if you have anything to, to add to that because Max has really been kind of, there has not been any other media outlet that covered the situation on the rails more consistently and more accurately than the team at The Real News, headed up by Editor-in-Chief Maximilian Alvarez and the Working People podcast, talking to leaders of the union, talking to leaders of the Railway Workers United, which is an inter-union cross-craft solidarity caucus, uh, talking to rank-and-file workers about what they're experiencing, talking about the East Palestine disaster. I mean, when all of this popped off about potentially maybe there's going to be a rail strike and then ended up Joe Biden, uh, you know, broke it. Uh, he was talking about this, Max was, for a year before all this started happening. I mean, that's how good the real news is like if you want to know about big national international labor stories a year before cnn is talking about them you got to go to the real news um and so one of the things to come out of this one of the things to come out of this situation in east palestine and the issue that almost led to a rail strike that joe biden in congress and you know while i'm talking you know joe biden broke the rail strike but it is worth knowing that more Republicans voted in favor of breaking the strike than Democrats. That's just worth throwing out there. But um, one of the things that come out of that was John Fetterman, senator from Pennsylvania and, and Democrat, and J.D. Vance, senator from Ohio, put forward a rail ra- railway safety bill that was supposed to address some of the issues that came out from the East Palestine disaster. And um, and so you haven't really heard a lot about it since it came out. And John Fetterman says that is in part because J.D. Vance is really not that interested in actually seeing it passed. And, you know, I mean, that shouldn't really surprise you that much. Um, John Fetterman said in a sit down with reporters uh, that. Um, uh, uh that the duo, um, let's see, after indicating uh, that the rail bill may be just one vote away from getting the necessary 60 votes to pass in the Senate, Fetterman laced into Vance for his effort to ban mask mandates, which he's pursuing this week. Fetterman said it was, quote, frustrated, frustrating that Vance was, quote, fixating on, quote, silly performance art. Uh, with his Freedom to Breathe Act, which is a bill to prevent the federal government from instituting mask mandates on public transportation, airplanes, or public schools until the end of 2024. Um, 
And so he's saying that Vance needs to be focusing on getting this finished and taken care of. Uh, Vance said that he is planning to seek unanimous consent for the passage of the mask mandate bill, blah, blah, blah. Fetterman, Fetterman argued that Vance wants to put up an act that's going to go nowhere. Instead of being worried about something that really can be transformative for rail safety. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of, I mean, really even no matter what you think about masks, like whether you want to wear them or whether you don't, I mean, I don't like, I don't wear them. And some people, you know, I know that probably some people might would hear that and they would have a problem with that. And that's fine. If you think that I'm not doing the right thing, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, it doesn't bother me. Uh, but I don't, I don't wear masks really anywhere, but (laughs) no matter what your position are on the masks, the idea that, this kind of silly bill in Congress is more important than actually getting the railway safety bill passed. Um, that should not be a bill that, that that should not be an idea that makes sense, right? Obviously, one of these things is more important than the other, no matter what you feel about the mask thing. Uh, Vance tried to defend himself to the insider. He said, quote, I think it's an important issue and I care about it. And he's free to disagree. Speaking about the mask mandate stuff. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen in this building and there are a lot of issues that we care about. Most of which John and I are going to come down on the opposite side of. We've been working there. Uh, we've been working their railway bill really hard. We are also going to have to work other things hard as well, because there are a lot of issues that the people who elected me care about. Vance added that he's had pretty minimal day-to-day interactions with Fetterman as they've worked to build support for the bill. Vance said, most of my work on the railway bill has been persuading Republican colleagues to sign on to the bill. Obviously, we talked a lot when we were cutting the initial draft of the bill, and we've been doing separate things to try to get it over the hill. So we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, really absolutely wishing uh, Fetterman the best of luck in trying to get this passed because um, it's important. It's important, this thing that, that you know, Fetterman wants to get passed. So we'll see. Um, uh, we'll see what happens there. Adam said that <laughs> defending himself in the chat, I mean, you know, protesting too much really probably is what's happening. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, Adam says, I've been married for 10 years. Thank you very much. And also the Labor Party guy is Mark Dudzik. Check out the interview with Mark Dudzik. Um, <laughs> so uh, we should have, have we got um, Alex in the Zoom yet? Do not see her just yet. Okay, that's fine. No problem there because we have a caller on the line. All right, let me get them pulled up. Just one sec. Let's uh, take. Uh, let's bring on the air. Two six seven. Caller. I think we got. I think yep. we got infinite content over yeah. here. Two six seven area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey Jacob, um, it's Infinite calling from Philly. Uh, I think. Uh, I just want to add some extra context onto that story about the railway bill. One of the uh-huh. companies that was uh, so one of the companies that was uh, transporting chemicals in the East Palestine uh, derailment, they started making a bunch of donations to Congress, congressmen and senators, and the bills just kind of fall into the background. So that's corporate money in the play. I believe Status Group reported on that. They've been doing excellent work on covering the East Palestine derailment. Yeah, you know, I think I remember something about uh, seeing it uh, be watered down, um, but I can't remember uh, exactly what was taken out of it. 
Um, but I do, I do feel like I remember. Here's a Mother Jones article from June of 23. Uh, J.D. Vance watered down his rail safety bill. So I don't know. So you know, folks, folks should check out that to see how how transformative it is at this point. But certainly, it would be better than nothing. I would assume. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to go on. Oh, and oh, and I'm sorry. Uh, infinite content. Max just put in the chat. Quote, in the last four months, Norfolk spent $1.6 million on lobbyists who met with the same elected officials tasked with regulating the company. That's convenient. Oh, but I just wanted to take a little tangent um, because this uh, will affect labor down the line and talk about the Cop City um, arrest and the RICO charges there. Because they're charging some, they may charge 61 people with RICO charges. Like this is a big criminal conspiracy. Two people who were just passing out flyers got charged with domestic terrorism charges. Now the reason I bring this up is because if cops will do this for towards uh, community protesters, they'll also try and pull the same types of stunt with labor protesters. I promise you, because cops are not. Uh, Cops unions are not for the people. They act against the people, and they only serve the interests of themselves and capital. But I promise you, they're going to use this as a um, a playbook going forward. So I just want people just to take a moment to think about that, um, because you never know if they might try and go ahead and try and start uh, rounding up people in SAG-AFTRA or um, at any other uh, co corporation or any other companies that are on strike because they're like, oh, you're interfering with our business, so we got to charge them domestically and use lawfare against them. It's just uh, something I want you all to keep in mind of how uh, dirty pull that um, corporations and um, capital play against towards the masses. Yeah, absolutely. And we want to do a deeper dive on this Cop City stuff because it is absolutely bad and the, the RICO charges oh. are insane. Um, we've, we've I would suggest that you... Um, Reach out to somebody, the Atlanta Community Press Collective. They're, that's okay. an independent, um, they are doing uh, excellent day to day um, coverage of it. Now, they just locked up five um, men and women of faith, um, like preachers and stuff, yes, on Thursday, charged them today. I think they're being arraigned um, and seen in court today. But mm -hmm. it's never a good look when cops are locking up um, holy men and holy women. No. Nope, absolutely not. Uh, but yeah, like I said, we, we want to try to do a deeper dive, have a, have a guest on to talk about this. Uh, we did mention, actually, when, when one of these rounds of, of crazy charges came out about like domestic terrorism a couple of months ago, international president mm -hmm. of the Painters Union, Jimmy Williams, condemned that. And we mentioned that um, during a, a last week in Southern Labor, I think, and I was really happy. I was That made me, when Jimmy Williams came out with that statement... Um, that made me very happy that, that the painters are one of our bigger sponsors. So, Okay. Well, I'm, I think I'll, I'll pull Buster know for Alex to get on. I'll give you a call next week. Tell All right. Yep. Thanks for the call. If you want to get where Infinite Content was, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And I think we have Alex in the Zoom now, right?
Yes, indeed. Fantastic. Alex Press is a staff writer for Jacobin Magazine. Very good stuff going on there, and she is our next guest on the Valid Labor Report. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Can't believe this is my first time on here, I think. I know. Yeah, we've been <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we talk occasionally and I saw you at um I saw you last year almost it would have been actually 18 months ago at the last Labor Notes conference yeah. and we were like, "Oh yeah, we got to have yeah. you on." And then I don't know, 18 <laughs> months later, here we are. That's all right. So, Happy to be here. <laughs> well, really glad to have you. Appreciate it and appreciate everything that you've been doing um covering the UAW stuff and and so um we're going to talk about that um but first I have a clip that I'm really excited to show you because I think it's going to make you really happy. I think you're going to be excited to see <laughs> okay. this. And, it, and it's about the SAG after strike. Um, and you've been doing a lot of reporting about what's been going on with SAG and, and WGA uh, with their, their strike against the Hollywood media companies. And so let's, uh, uh, you know, I, I won't preface it too much more than that. It's a, it's a little bit longer of a clip. It's about two minutes long. Um, but, uh, uh, we'll just go ahead and play this and, and then I'm, uh, I want to know what you think about it. Let's play this clip okay. from Bill Maher then. The strike is a perfect example. Th those guys would never go back. This strike could go on till, uh, the 24th century. They would stay out. Um, there is, I feel for my writers. I love my writers. I'm one of my writers. Yeah. Uh, but there's a big other side to it, and a lot of people are being hurt besides them. A lot of people who don't make as much money as them. In this um, bipartisan world we have, where you're just in one camp or the other, there's no in-between. You're either for the strike, like like they're fucking Che Guevara out there. You know, like this is Cesar Chavez lettuce-picking strike, or you're with Trump. You know, like there's no different. There's there's only two camps, and it's much more complicated than that. It is, but I I do feel like there is uh, a lot of the points, a lot of the grievances. I I kind of agree with. I do understand that they're getting uh, screwed a bit by the streamers. Yes. Yeah, I mean, but it's a change, and you either, you know, it's like. Anything that is, you know, I believe in free market, but I also believe in trust and then verify, right? What does that mean? Meaning, you you know, you don't trust, you know, like the reason, I mean, Zaslov made $400 million uh, and I think the, they're, they're looking for $80 million for, you know, it's like, it's like they're gonna, gr you know, you leave a kid in front of a bowl of marshmallows, they're gonna eat the marshmallows. <laughs> it's not like some grand thing. It's well, I don't know what you're saying. They're only asking for eighty million dollars. Well, I'm saying they're asking that for a lot of things. They're asking are, for a lot that of are things like kooky, like what what I find objectionable uh, about the philosophy of the strike. It seems to be they have really morphed a long way from two thousand seven strike where they kind of believe that you're owed a, a, a living as a writer, and you're not. This, this is show business. This is a make-or-miss league, and not everybody... You don't think that, like, they should... That streamers should reveal numbers so that they can... Oh, maybe. Things? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, so, Alex, I mean, you got to, I mean... You just got to be fair to Bill. It is pretty crazy thinking that you deserve to make a living, right? 
I love at the end that the guy mentions one of the concrete demands about streamers sharing their numbers, and Bill is like, oh, that is a good idea. He just has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, that absolutely came through, because you could tell... I mean, you could. I could almost feel the kind of stop in his voice after he said some of their demands are kooky. Because after you say that, you like obviously have to at least say one demand that's kooky. And then he was like, <laughs> right. "Oh shit! Now I've got to. Now I've got to say something like I, <laughs> like I half know what I'm talking about." And 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 his, his the thing that came out was, "Oh, they want to be able to live." <laughs> That's kooky. That's right. the least kooky demand. I mean, you could at least mention AI or something if right. you want to get like weird, but a living right. is bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was so, you know, <laughs> how would you feel gotta, right now if you were a writer for Bill Maher? Oh. <laughs> I got to say an old friend of mine who's a TV was a TV writer. I don't think he works in the industry anymore. He tweeted in response to this clip, I think that his agent had tried to get him to work to be a writer on Bill Maher and said, the writers there get paid the best of anyone in late night. And he said, why is that? And the agent was like, well, because it's so awful to work with Bill. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well that, uh, I, I, I do not doubt it, uh, from, yeah. <laughs> from all of this nonsense that he puts out on his show. And so, you know, that that's kind of, uh, a little bit of levity there because it's just so silly, but, but what are, you know, where are we with the, the SAG and the WGA strikes right now? There's not a lot of movement. Um, I mean, the last thing was, so the studios haven't talked to the, to SAG after at all. Um, they finally, you know, called the WGA back. They had a back and forth over the course of a week in late August. And it once again kind of devolved where, you know, the the counters, the counter proposals that the studios gave were insufficient for the union. And then they immediately kind of leaked it to the press despite a media mm -hmm. blackout. And kind of um, they're trying to sow division among the writers. And of course, this just pissed everyone off. And now, you know, no one's calling anyone again. Um, so there is really no end in sight right now for the strike, which is crazy because it is month four. Uh, going into five for the writers and, you know, day 60 or something for, for SAG-AFTRA. So not a short strike and nowhere near resolved. That is uh, that is kind of. That is wild because, you know, despite Bill Maher thinking that, you know, these demands are kooky, um, they're really not. I mean, wh what are – go through some of the uh, – go through some – can you tell us some of the things that, you know, the writers and the actors are looking for? Yeah. So, I mean, the really kind of interesting one was what was mentioned at the end of that clip when the guy he's talking to says, you know, the streamers should share their numbers – so this is about the fact that if you make a show for Netflix, um, even if you created the show, you have no idea how many people mm. watch it. Um, right. The streamers keep that data private. You know, it's really interesting because back in sort of in broadcast or network television, you immediately had the numbers, right? A Nielsen rating score would be up by the next morning. Um, and this isn't just about, you know, sort of knowing that you're successful or not. Um, but there was there were residual payments tied to the success of a show, um, and so this is part of it's a demand that the SAG-AFTRA and WGA members share is that they want a new residual um, based on the success of their shows on streaming, 
but first they would have to have the data to know how successful mm -hmm. they are. So it's just, I, I mentioned that one because it's really interesting that all of these writers and actors are living in this world where they have no idea how many people are watching their work. Um, and when they try to hear it from the studio execs, you know, they're just totally, it's like speaking to a blank, a, a wall, right? They just have no information. Um, so that's one, um, you know, there's basic things like they want a significant raise, um, you know, writer pay has gone down something, you know, some significant percentage, I think 23% if adjusted for inflation for the past decade. Um, a, much more of the membership in the WGA is now making the minimum, um, mm. even if they have decades of experience. So there's obvious things like that. SAG-AFTRA, you know, has health insurance and pension fund holes to fill. Um, and then AI, of course, uh, people want regulations and control over the use of AI. Uh, I think this is, you know, the WGA also has this demand, but SAG-AFTRA is kind of like this canary in the coal mine around AI because performers already are having their likenesses scanned. And it's kind of an interesting thing to think about just how big of a threat it poses. You know, say half of the background actors now are just, you're not hiring them, you're just using their likenesses and digitally generating them. Well, you also don't need costume and hair. You don't, you know, it starts affecting IATSE. It starts affecting all kinds of people. So that's a big one. Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, the scanning people's likenesses and being able to use that for background actors in perpetuity really does kind of cut at the heart of the ability to, you know, uh, break into the industry, you know, make it or make it or break it industry, uh, you know, is what Bill Maher said. And and this is really <laughs> cutting into people's ability to make it because that's how folks do get their big shot. You know, I, I have a I have a friend um, that one of my closest friends here, she's an actor and she, you know, talked to, she, you know, we were talking about the SAG strike and she was speaking to me about how, you know, her and, and her local production company, you know, they really support it and they think that it's really important because, you know, they recognize how important these issues are, even for, you know, kind of the indie actors. And, and she went on, uh, you know, she told me a, a long story about uh, Guthrie from Friends. I don't know if, if you've watched Friends or if you remember Guthrie. But, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So Guthrie was the, the platinum blonde bartender at the coffee shop. And he was not supposed to be a recurring character. He was just one, you know, one scene in one show. And, you know, she was like, and there was something about him that, you know, the directors like and the producers liked. And and so he he became like a really recurring character to where, you know, towards the end of the show, uh, he was getting long speaking lines and and, you know, some plot points centering around him. And and, you know, and she was like, if you take away our ability to do that, the only people who are going to be able to be actors are like Jennifer Aniston's children, right? And so <laughs> yeah. that, you know, that seemed to me to be like a really powerful anecdote to, you know, to go along with kind of the data of of these arguments that the actors are making. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and it's a different sort of take on it, but when I was out in LA, I was speaking to this actor on the picket lines outside of the Netflix um, corporate offices. And it, which is like heart of Hollywood. And I was speaking to this woman, Stevie Nelson, who had hosted a show on um, Nickelodeon for a few mm. seasons. And so we're not even talking about background actor here. She was the mm. host of the show. And she immediately started telling me, you know, 
I'm afraid that there's enough footage of me hosting a television show that you could train AI on that and you could have me hosting shows, you know, forever in, you know, digitally saying things I never did, said, doing things I never did. Mm. You know, she was like, this would be a different, it's a different tack. It's more about, you know, sort of control over oneself. I mean, it's quite literally control over one's body because, you know, say it has the show has her doing or saying horrible things. It would be impossible to tell that she didn't really say those things, right? And so people really, I think, feel like this is a, like their autonomy itself is kind Mm -hmm. of at risk here um, in the age of like endless kind of digital fakes and things like that. Um, That's a real fear too. I mean, these are people's voices. It's their livelihood, it's their bodies and their voices um, for performers. So, you know, it sort of is cutting at a very deep level, I think, for a lot of these workers. And there is some concern among the, uh, you know, uh, among some people in the union about retaliation for being too publicly in support of the strike. You know, if you're not like a huge, big A-list celebrity, um, I was listening to one interview where they said that there were some not too, um, not too veiled threats about, you know, people on the bargaining committee for SAG never being able to work in the industry again. And, you know, that's another one of the things that the studios are doing to try to break the strike. And, and you know, that makes me have all the more respect for people, you know, especially like Adam Conover, who's been so publicly, uh, you know, the face of the strike, really, in a lot of ways for both the writers and now the actors. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's well known. He's like a household name, but he's not somebody that, you know, the studio's could never live without right and so that takes it seems to me like a lot of courage yeah i mean just yesterday we haven't published it yet but i did a i had a long conversation with this writer alex o'keefe um who writes who wrote for the bear um so and that was the first show he ever wrote for he's a younger guy he's you know only been in the wga a few years and he likewise has become this really outspoken figure you know i think he he sort of got well known at the very beginning of the strike because he went on CNN and said that he had, you know, been paid something like, you know, below a livable, below even almost uh, like thirty, forty thousand dollars for that show. Um, you know, I've spoken to him about how he, he when he was writing that show, he was living in New York City still before he moved to L.A. And it was during the pandemic. He would be writing at his apartment the he had a space heater because the heat was broken and sometimes when he would plug the space heater in the power would go out in his apartment Mm. so he ended up having to write a lot of the an episode at the library you know and so this is like this is a working class issue you know and he is he then goes on and wins awards for the show you know huge buzzy hit um he ends up attending the award show with a bow tie that he bought on credit you know, he borrowed mm. money from his brother to get a suit. And, you know, this guy, too, even I'd say even more than Adam, because he's newer to the right. industry. And so, mm. you know, he was really his career was on a real upswing. You know, he mm-hmm. lucked into a huge hit. Right. Um, and I, he was saying, you know, blacklisting is is very much real. It's not just the anti-communist, you know, the the hearings that we all know mm. about in Hollywood. It is a thing of, you know, the town runs on reputation and blacklisting, you know, in a, I guess we call it gray listing, you know, this sort of soft avoidance of hiring people who are seen as labor militants or difficult to work with if you're the boss, that's how you would describe right. it. 
um, you know, is a constant in Hollywood. And it's not just Hollywood, of course. This is like every industry. There is some level of this. Um, but these people, I think, you know, Alex was saying to me, it was obvious that if, if people like him didn't do this, didn't like mm. take their success that they'd lucked into and use it to say, you know, hey, actually, we need a culture of solidarity here and we need massive change. I know Adam feels the same way. They're like, yeah. who would do it, right? We have to risk something. And it, it has been inspiring, right? Because these are people, um, there will be repercussions. There were mm -hmm. after the last writer's strike. Um, there always are when there's a, you know, a failed union organiz organizing campaign in Hollywood. Often the people who led it then are never hired again. Um, so there are real yeah. stakes here for people's lives. Absolutely. Um, Maximilian Alvarez is, is, is in the chat and he said, oh, cool. uh, he gave his quote from one of the SAG-AFTRA members that he interviewed this week. Uh, Bethany Ann Lind said, we are an industry that tells the stories of the human experience. We reflect humanity back to itself and the studios literally would take the human beings out, uh, of all of it if they could, because that would be cheaper. Um, and I really do think that's kind of a, that kind of buttons up the, uh, the, the issue right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, there was uh, another story that you've been following, and then we'll talk about the UAW, is the American Political Science Association. And, you know, the 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 way that I've thought about it ever since it started kind of the, started being a controversy on uh, Twitter.com is, you know, like scabbing but wokely. <laughs> I mean, it's basically <laughs> how, how they're going about this. Can you give, uh, you know, yeah. what is your understanding of what's been going on? And they just had their conference last week, right? Yeah, on Labor Day weekend, of all things. <laughs> um, <laughs> incredible. Yeah, so... so, so yeah, go on. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no. The, the go ahead. the The reason that they're they're scabbing is because there's a um, there is a uh, uh, hotel worker strike. So talk to talk to us first. I guess on background, Unite Here is striking in Los Angeles. What's that about? Yeah. So something like um, fifteen thousand hotel workers have been engaged in a contract fight that has gotten very very dirty. Um, with something like 45 properties across the Los Angeles and broader Southern California area. This is Unite Here Local 11. Um, and, you know, Unite Here is often willing to wage, you know, very public showdowns um, against mm. their employers. And in the hotel industry, when the employer is refusing to sort of agree um, to, to some of these key demands, that often means, you know, calling boycotts on hotels, uh, you know, otherwise kind of, pushing uh, people and organizations not to give their business to the employer that is being intransigent. Um, it is worth saying that a couple of the key things that the hotel workers are sort of demanding or proposing in their, um, in their negotiations include not just raises um, to keep up with the incredible cost of living in Southern California, mm -hmm. but there's really an issue of housing. And mm. part of why the hotels are kind of pissed off at the workers here is that Unite Here has been insisting on actually raising certain housing issues at the bargaining table. They want the hotels to sign on to certain um, referendums that they're pushing, which would be, for instance, for all the housing that is demolished to build luxury hotels, um, you know, the hotel in question would have to pay some sort of tax um, towards uh, affordable housing, you know, things mm. like this to try to try to start to address the incredible housing crisis in the area. Um, and, you know, I talked to the one of the, the co-president of the local uh, when I was in Los Angeles, 
And she said, you know, she's never even seen what is now happening among her, among her membership, which is mm. they're sharing rooms on ships. So that you have people sort of sharing a room and I get to sleep for eight hours while you're on your hotel shift. And then you come back and you use my bed and I go work my shift. Like it is truly a crisis for these. And these are union workers, right? Wow. So this is really bad. So that's the state of things. Um, you know, one hotel has agreed and reached a TA with the, with the um, union. Otherwise, everyone has been holding out. So that's what led to this uh conflict with the academics was uh you know apsa is the name of their organization the american political science association and uh they were holding their annual conference at which you know something like six thousand academics were expected to attend one of the bigger conferences that were slated to happen um at one of these struck hotels mm -hmm. and so you don't hear local 11 appealed to them as they have been to almost every kind of organization and high profile person to relocate the conference either right. online or at the one hotel that has reached an agreement um and to be clear i mean the really embarrassing thing for the academics is like vanderpump rules did this they relocated you know various kind of like organizations and productions that are not radically uh politically uh <laughs> progressive it's just it was understood that this is the right thing to do um the academics did not do this so absolutely mm. um you know, as you said, sort of woke scabbing, uh, they ended up putting out a statement saying, you know, we this would affect our, you know, underrepresented and younger scholars too much. We can't do that to them, nor the like local businesses that benefit from our presence mm. in Los Angeles. Um, and it would just be the cost would be too much for us to cancel. Um, and so they basically went on with the conference. It was, yeah. I couldn't believe they actually went on, you know, at this point, it was something like the majority of the members backed out individually, which was great to see all these academics, <laughs> you know, saying, of course, I'm not crossing a picket line. And right. yet they still had the conference. It must have been a terrible conference if no one was there. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's kind of the thing is like, if I was an APSA member, one, I obviously not going to cross the picket line. But then even if I was like half tempted, the fact that the presenters were willing to cross the picket line is, you know, I'm just not super interested in what these people have to say about politics. Right. <laughs> They're crossing a picket line. Um, and but they did. You know, I I just we're we're fair and balanced here on this program. And so uh -huh. uh, one of the things and I think it was APSA put out a, a handy tip to avoid crossing a picket line. Um, they said that uh, in one case, there's a door around back. So you just totally resolve the issue, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I gotta say, academics are not sending their best. This is a real, <laughs> it's, it's making them look exactly like, I think uh, we think of academics in the worst light, you know, as <laughs> just, you know, just incredible to say, to at least just say you're crossing the picket line instead right. of like, well, technically we're respecting it. And also we're doing this on behalf of the underprivileged scholars. Uh -huh. Like, shut up. <laughs> Wasn't that, was that actually, because I remember the tweet, but I don't remember the author. Was that actually direction from the APSA? No, it wasn't. It was another, okay. it was some academic, um, like, it was it was related to a particular university. It was like some department was directing. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. But I, Let's I saw not that. Slander. I was like, 
let's not slander the great organization that is APSA. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, we like I said, fair and balanced. Um, but yeah, so glad they were able to, uh, glad at least somebody was able to resolve this contradiction about crossing a picket line. You just got to go around back. That's all you got to do. Um, so You just fly uh, in on a helicopter and you get dropped uh, into there you go. a hotel. <laughs> There you go. That's I mean, there's all sorts of creative ways. And that's why these people are so much smarter than the rest of us. That's what these big fancy degrees. So that degree taught. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, teaches you how to think, not just what to think. So um, the the last uh, saving the best for last, the biggest for last, not the best. All workers are, are important. But the biggest story, no doubt, is about the UAW. And, and their, uh, uh, you know, their potential, and it's looking day by day more and more likely uh, that it is going to be a strike. We're going to be reviewing, um, after we let you go, all of the, you know, so, some of the um, proposals that Sean Fain went over last night. Um, we just spoke to earlier in the program a UAW member, Nick Livick, about working for uh, GM and and what that's like and, and how the members are feeling. And so just to take kind of a, a you know, 30,000 foot view of this, uh, how have how have you been seeing this struggle play out? And what do you think are, are kind of the the big things to to pull out and emphasize? Yeah, I mean, instead of going into the particular demands, I think the bigger thing, this broader dynamics here, there's a couple important ones. I mean, one is this broader ongoing problem of offshoring. You know, Stellantis is already threatening, you know, has long been threatening to move jobs to Mexico, as they'll put it. Um, and so there is, I think, a broader contradiction that we have to sort of that the UAW and particularly the newly elected reform leadership still has to figure out of, you know, how do you build international kind of solidarity among the unions um, to combat this employer um, threat to sort of um, to engage in basically capital flight. Um, that question is also front and center because of the way this fight is playing out around electric vehicles. Um, so this is another thing that, you know, it's interesting with the UAW and auto work because you really see how powerful it is, how central it is for the economy. You know, as soon as there's a threatened strike, mm. you know, you have Biden making comments, you have Trump sort of weighing in, uh, you have, you know, it's like front and center, right? Very similar to the UPS strike. This is a massive part of the economy that we sort of rely on uh, these workers um, agreeing to work in these plants. And so I think it's really, you know, it's it's a rare thing, similar to the rail strike that was not um, mm -hmm. in that when there's a certain parts of the economy, when workers actually um, threaten to withdraw their labor, uh, you see just how much leverage they have because people start freaking right. out. Um I would say, so the EV fight is another one. I'm sure Nick probably talked about this. Um, but, you know, basically, this is a huge sort of um, priority of, say, the Democratic Party, that they would sort of be seen as having figured out a way to push the transition to electric vehicles, which objectively is good. Yes, we want electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. But in practice, what's happening here is basically the build out of an entirely non-union. It's almost like a lower tier um, right. And but it's becoming it really is the future of auto production in America. So the UAW rightly sees it as like watching all of its future, you know, be, you know, be dispersed and, and there is no future. Right. Because 
this is where the money is going. And, and of course, there's like tax subsidies and incentives and loans um, to push this transition. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're just watching non-union, you know, futures get built right in front of your eyes. And so this is a big part of the fight because um, the UAW knows that the legacy auto is going to be more legacy than ever. This is the EV stuff is going to be the future. Um, so that's another big one. Right. And that that about the the transition is really important. And, and you know, just to emphasize, because uh, obviously, you know, now we're in the online portion of the program. So most of the people who see this are going to be, you know, union people, left wing people. Right. You're going to agree. But we do get a, a couple of people occasionally who will see our stuff online and, and and, you know, kind of bulk at it. It's not just because these non-union jobs are non-union. It's because, like you said, they are of lesser quality. They pay less. The conditions are worse. You have less time off. You have worse health care. You don't have a pension. I mean, you name a condition of your work and these non-union auto jobs are worse, like without a doubt. And so not only does it challenge the union's, you know, place in society, it challenges w- working people's ability to have good and decent lives. And again, just as, you know, I, 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 I try to point this out a lot. The question is not, is this value being created? Is the money being made? The question is, who's going to make it? And the UAW wants that question to be answered by uh, the workers, the workers, they, they need to make the money. They need to be able to have a good standard of living. And the big three automakers want it answered the opposite way. <laughs> they don't want the workers to have any money. And what Trump did in his uh, trying to attack Sean Fain uh, last week, um, which was amazing, you know, he tried to ob- obfuscate that. It's like, no, it's not about it's not about the workers versus the big three. Actually, what it is, is the big three automakers that Sean Fain has been attacking these last several months. They're actually in cahoots with Sean Fain to create all these non-union jobs. And they're screwing you over like on purpose and you shouldn't pay your dues. I mean, it's really astounding kind of the gall to put forward that argument. Yeah. I mean, it's it sucks, right? Like, it just, it makes no sense, of course, first of all. But to see, yeah, I mean, this is what I meant about, you know, this is really, to go back to you saying, you know, this is about whether people can have good paying, decent jobs. I mean, this is the standard that the UAW set with these mm-hmm. national contracts way back in mid 20th century, right, was these were decent jobs that actually set the standard for manufacturing work, not just in auto, but all all across sort of industry here, because these contracts were kind of this pace setting function in America. Um, and so they've been significantly undermined, of course, in recent decades. And then this question of, will they basically, will these the future of these jobs just be entirely shitty, mm-hmm. right? Like, will, will you be get getting paid $16 to work at an auto plant, 16 an hour, right. uh, which is what was happening at, at one of these plants. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are bigger questions and it's sort of why this becomes such a political fight, you know, because it, the, you know, auto has ripple effects. You know, if, mm-hmm. if you set a standard in this industry that is high, it will affect other industries and other workers as well. If you right. cannot do that and, 
the future of this work is low wage and precarious and toxic chemicals on the plant floor, then that will be the future of work for a lot more people than just auto workers. Exactly. I'd say a lot of it has to do with like our self-image because we have this so American-made kind of Mm. thing that and all these politicians want to ride on, you know, American workers. But so it's big and they they want to jump in on it because it's part of our it's part of our identity, you know, and a lot of people's identities, these union workers, it's huge for them, too. Yeah. And, and you know, the the transition to to, you know, more green energy, you know, quote unquote, it, it's even bigger than the auto stuff. There was a, a really fascinating report from the American Prospect a couple of weeks ago about um, Georgia <laughs> really raking in the money uh, from these auto uh, or from these um green energy tax subsidies uh, being the number one uh, recipient of money and jobs in the, you know, the green sector, but it's all going non-union. All the construction is non-union. And, you know, there again, you know, not going with the building trades is really going to, it, it, it hurts Georgia construction workers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say other than right. like, you know, I really this is I think one last thing to say is this might be a very difficult strike. I mean, maybe that's stating mm. the obvious, but, yeah. you know, this is these companies are massively powerful. Um, you know, th- there is a brand new leadership. I mean, mm-hmm. it's crazy to think about the reform slate, you know, wins all the seats they contest. You know, I was in Detroit the day after Sean was sworn in as president. And he had to lead a special convention the next day. I mean, that in itself right. was sort of chaotic. Now they are trying to, you know, institute. It's not just pull off a strike or lead a strike, but sort of a, there is a vision of like rank and file uh, mobilization that, you know, these these reformers adhere to about strike contract campaigns, you know, about organizing at the shop floor level. And they have had, you know, they are running, they're starting to run a contract campaign and stuff. But again, we're talking about like they've had six months total um, in taking over from an incredibly entrenched and, you know, sclerotic bureaucratic leadership that in fact, you know, did the opposite of of encouraging workers to be able to sort of take their own initiative. You know, the the admin caucus that ran the UAW forever, um, you know, sort of if, if, sort of pulling off a rank and file led kind of mobilization is a muscle, you know, it hasn't mm-hmm. been worked in the UAW, even when they do strike, which is, you know, it's a very strike prone union for sure. There is a sort of legacy of militancy, but it's so top down, you know, you're just told, right. Hey, you're going to go out on the picket line tomorrow. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, you have no idea where the contract uh, negotiations right. are. You're just like, okay. Um, so, I mean, I just I just want to emphasize this is like a massive undertaking for people who are just getting their bearings on mm-hmm. what it is to sort of rework and reform this union. Um, I actually remember the most powerful companies, you know. Right. And I actually remember being struck by that in 2019 when I was on the picket line with GM folks, you know, asking them, you know, what are kind of the big the big things and. And and none of them could really tell me. They were like, you know, like our leadership, they told us to go on strike. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we trust them. And, and so obviously the companies aren't, you know, GM isn't giving us enough. And so, uh, you know, we're fighting for, you know, what we deserve and everything. And that's admirable that, you know, they were, they were willing to go on strike and not cross the picket line and give up pay and all that um, because, you know, they had trust in their leadership. But like, you know, you shouldn't really have to trust your leadership that much, you know. Yeah. I mean, Sean Fain has said that maybe Nick 
has to, or you guys have discussed this before, but like Sean Fain was on the Stellantis National Bargaining Committee, you know, a few years back. And he has said that even he was blocked out of knowing how mm. negotiations were going. It was just the like one leader and no one else was allowed to know anything about how things were going. Right. And so I really, you know, compared to you mentioned Sean Fain's being on Facebook Live yesterday, giving updates. I mean, he's been giving updates constantly. Mm. Um, it's just a wildly different approach. And that's, you know, what you kind of need if you're asking your members to engage in what could be a lengthy strike um, or a difficult strike. Um, people have to know where they're at um, and feel oriented in the fight. Um, and so I think I think that's a great thing. But um, whether they strike one, two or three, I think we definitely it looks like almost certainly come, you know, next Friday. Right. Uh, there will be a strike. Alex Press, staff writer for Jacobin Magazine. Appreciate you taking the time with us this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Have a good yeah. one. You too. Bye. Definitely check out her work, folks. It's really great. Uh, I'm a subscriber to Jacobin. You should be too. Very good stuff um, and uh, and good reporting. And she does stuff for, for other other folks too, uh, for labor notes. And I think I've seen her in, in these times and stuff like that. So lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. Um, phone number is 844-899-8857. Uh, that is 844-899-TVLR. Um, in the chat, we have, uh, like I said, we've got several UAW folks. We've got 62 people watching us live right now and only 46 likes. We can get those numbers up. And if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do. Mike says, uh, Dearborn Truck Plant, Local 600, we're building the electric F-150 truck. That's pretty interesting. One thing um, is everyone I work with and, and build these trucks don't even want one. And even if they did want one, which they don't, they can't afford to buy one. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, I mean, you should be able to buy the stuff that you make, I think. That's a hot take. Uh, Will Pina, uh, Teamster from California, says UPS Teamster uh, solidarity with our UAW brothers and sisters. We got your back. Um, absolutely. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing a bunch of Teamsters on the UAW picket lines. That will be great. Um, Mike says 100000 for an electric truck. I did not realize they were that much. Holy crap. That's insane. Ooh. And that's with, and you know, like how many, how, how many subsidies do these electric trucks get? Like an inordinate amount is my understanding. So uh, that's crazy that it still costs $100,000 even after all those subsidies. That's wacky. That's wacky. We have a caller on the line, uh, looks like. All right, let me get them in. This is a 714 area code. Yeah, and... 714 area code. What is your name? And where are you calling from? Buenos dias, Jake. Buenos dias for the gentleman, the brother filling in for uh, Adam over there. Buenos yeah. dias to everybody. Jose Francisco Negrete, Teamster Local 952 and Teamster Mobilized. Uh, great, great episode you guys are having today. Uh, UPS Teamsters, Rank and Filers, and the working clashes stand with our uh, a, uh, United Auto Worker brothers and sisters. If they if they go on strike, we will be there on the picket line, you know, shoulder to shoulder with with you all, because that's what labor needs to do. That's what solidarity means. 
And uh, I just want to bring something up that I don't I don't know if it's been mentioned or, or if it has, but uh, there's a Amazon facility out here in Moreno Valley called Aunt Eight that will have an election. I just don't know when they're 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 going to have their election for unionization because they're going to unionize with the Amazon Labor Union, but they're going to have an election. I want to give a shout out to Nanette Placencia. Her and her team out there are doing the Herculean effort, you know, to get, you know, members, uh, the the workers in Aunt 8, you know, signed up for their authorization cards. I think Maxi, Max had them on their, uh, had, them, had her and probably two others, I think, on his show several months back. So uh, they're going to have an election. It, it's, it's pretty cool once I, I saw the news. Uh, she kind of broke it on. Uh, actually, I saw Chris Miles break it on Thursday. Then I saw her, her uh, Instagram page, and it, it was there. I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> you know, it's it, it's super cool that uh, they want to have an election there. She's been going on for roughly like a year and a half, maybe two years. You know, trying to organize that place, and you know, shout outs to her. But it's funny when you go to that Amazon facility. It's a, I think it's a fulfillment center. There's literally two Amazons across the street from each other. Uh, from each other, one is uh, they have a facility that's that that specializes with their well, what in UPS we call our bulk, you know, TVs, furniture, refrigerators, weights, and anything you know above a certain uh, weight limit and uh, and length and and height, you know, whatever. And then there's another one. There's then there's one across the street too. <laughs> I think it's Aunt Seven, I believe. And then there's an Amazon uh, Air Hub that I think it's like a couple miles away. I want to say maybe two miles away. And this is in Moreno Valley in in Southern California. So out here in San Bernardino and Riverside, it is literally the logistics uh, hub for for the country because there are so many different logistics. <clears throat> distribution, excuse me, distribution uh, centers or warehouses in in that facility. It's crazy. There was a big old Skechers one that I that I passed by there. When I've been there once to on it on uh, on eight, and I forgot the other one that was there. But there's just so much like logistics out there. It's just mind boggling. Just to see three Amazons across the street from each other, <laughs> literally crossing the street. It was just like. It, it 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 was it was it was uh it was kind of wild to see that because I've I mean three but that's that's Amazon Amazon is is a is a threat to all of us whether you work in the warehouse or you work in their uh you know media division you know they're just they're just a threat so the, all these all these uh these happenings going you know striking out here with the WGA and, and SAG AFTRA. Or you're on, on on eight, or you're at uh, the uh, small Amazon facility out here in uh, in Palmdale. You know, you're a DSP driver. We're all interconnected. You know, I just wish there was more of a a connective tissue. I would love to see some SAG actors actors, you know, go to on eight and and you know show their support, or go to uh, Palmdale and show their support. You know, we we have to support each other. We can't be 
in this tribalistic setting, oh, I'm this, I'm that. No, we're all workers. <laughs> we're all suffering the same conditions, you know, but we're working under different entities. I mean, uh, you had just, you just had Alex and, you know, I met uh, uh, the writer uh, from the bear, Alex O'Keefe, I think his name is, you know, he's a great, great, great person, a young cat, but he's, he he sees that the that the struggles are interconnected, and I remember last week you had a you had a UPS teamster and you asked him why he's a socialist. I want to tell you why I'm a red teamster. I grew up in a time in the '90s in California when they had this proposition, Proposition 187, where they targeted immigrants, but it was mostly attack on on you know uh, Spanish-speaking people, where regardless you're from Mexico, Guatemala, San Salvador. Uh, Nicaragua. It was attacked because they were, they were saying that we we were, we were taking advantage of the system. It was one of the racist propositions, right? And then several years later, we have Proposition 209 that went after affirmative action. I believe in uh, state hiring. I could be wrong. Uh, and then during that time, you have NAFTA. You know, so I and I come from a working class community. I live, I live in, a, I've lived in apartments all my life. I know uh, in the, out here in my street where I live at, my barrio, there's, you know, two or three families living in in a single bedroom apartment. And we have Measure A out here in Anaheim, California, because Measure A wants to give protection to hotel workers. You know, and you have, I see my, my streets littered with vote on measure, no, save Anaheim. Save Anaheim from what? We're trying to give protection to hotel workers, you know, and, and you're out here giving this propaganda, save Anaheim? <laughs> save Anaheim from what? You're already gentrifying Anaheim. It's not, it's not what I grew up with, you know, because I grew up in a Mexican-American community where I could walk from one, you know, mile away and, you know, see people like me and just, you know. Save Anaheim for who, right? I, I would, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know they're not they're not saving Anaheim. So why that's why I'm a red teamster. You know, I I've seen the struggles. I've seen my mom work hard and do what she could, you know, to raise me and my sister. My sister's a she just finally joined her union out there in uh, West Virginia. She's a professor out there in uh, West Virginia University. You know, so so shout out to my sister, uh, Doctor Gloria Angela Negrete Lopez. That's that's my sister. You know, so I, I, that's why I'm a red team. So I know this system is not fair. I know this system is broken. This system needs to be replaced. You know, so that's why I'm a red teamster. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. You know, but that shouldn't limit me from talking to members with different uh, viewpoints and ideologies. At the end of the day, we, we we're going to get screwed over by this corp by, by the corporation, regardless if you work at UPS or somewhere else. You know, our all our struggles are interconnected. But I just wanted to say. Oh, and let me give a shout out to all the to all the rank and file out here at nine five two because they you got a little you got a little contingency that listens to it in in Anaheim and Laguna package drivers feeder uh, inside warehouse guys and girls uh, the part timers you know we we all listen to your show so uh, I want to give a shout out to them you guys are holding it down this week I haven't been walking the uh, shop floor because uh, my allergies have been flaring up, so I've been wearing a mask again because I don't want to sneeze on anybody or or anything like that. So I, I've been more of my uh, uh, Depeche Mode cured kind of ways where you're just a little bit more isolated, you know. 
<clears throat> you don't want to get, you know, you just don't, you don't want to cough on anybody or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I just, I got to go back on the floor and still preach uh, power into the ears and tell them that like, these are your rights. You know, most, most of the members know, but not, all, but not all of the members know, you know, so it's, it's, it's upon me and upon others too, to teach one and then you teach the other person, you know, teach one and teach another one. So it, if there's a domino effect, you know, but you know what? I want to give a shout out to you guys. Thank you for for always allowing me to call in and you know give my uh, perspective. I don't want to give no perspective. I don't want to give no uh, prediction on the UAW strike because I was wrong one time. I don't want to. I don't want to be wrong again. But I just, I just, I just want the uh, United Auto Workers to know that we'll, we we have their back and whatever. Uh, you all call for we're going to be supportive of you guys if you guys do call for a strike we'll be there supporting you guys that's what la- that's what labor needs to do we need to support each other regardless if you're a united auto worker uh you're, you work at on eight warehouse you're out there in hollywood striking you're, you're striking a writer or actor or a hotel worker united here 11 they they had some events out here and uh in my home city of Anaheim, California, the happiest place on earth. And no, it's not Disneyland. It's the city of Anaheim. It's the happiest place on earth. But, you know, there's been, there's been some activities. And then there was a, a small little uh, restaurant called Port Vida right here in my city that the workers actually did a rally and they shut the, they shut the, the restaurant down because they, they, were standing up, they were standing up for the rights. And I passed by the restaurant the following day. No, the following, uh, it was on a Thursday that I saw the strike. So I, on Saturday, I usually go to Costco, and I saw that the that the store was kind of not boarded, but they had signs up. And I, I think that the, I was able to read some of the signs, and it was talked about the workers. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the workers were standing up. You know, regardless if you work in, 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 a, in a restaurant, you, you still owe dignity and respect because you're, you're a worker. You know, you're, you're owed that. And if you're not getting that, you should stand up for you should stand up for your rights. And shout out to all the working class out there. It's a struggle, but we're grinding every day. We need we need to fight. We we need to be in solidarity with each other. And and Jake, like how you say, all power to the workers. All right, appreciate the call, Jose. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um. Yeah, that's that's all good stuff. And I saw that actually about O and T eight, and uh, I was really excited that they were going to be um, that they're unionizing with the Amazon Labor Union. So hopefully, hopefully that one goes better than the other than the second uh, election that they did um, uh, just outside of the Staten Island um, <clears throat> warehouse where they had already um, where they had already won an election. Uh, if you want to go get where Jose is, the phone number is eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. That is eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. Jesse, a new uh, somebody new in the chat. I hadn't seen any. Uh, I hadn't seen anyways before. Solidarity LA UAW local two thirty. Appreciate it. So let's go ahead and, and get to this. Um, uh, what exactly? Where the big three automakers are in negotiations right now with the UAW, and like I've said, generally it, they're just not where they need to be. That's the gist of it. But specifically, in his address last night, 
UAW President Sean Fain spoke about exactly where each of the big three automakers are on tiers, on wages, COLA, profit sharing, temps, job security, work-life balance, and retirees. And so we'll go through those really quick and just list off basically where where they are so that you can so that you can kind of see exactly where the where the negotiations stand. So on tiers, the UAW is demanding a 90-day progression to the top rate and restoring pensions and retiree health care. Ford wants to, they all want to keep tiers, is the thing. Ford is saying a five-year progression, and they're rejecting all pension and retiree health care proposals, but they are willing to put a high cap, a not low enough cap, a high cap on temporary workers. GM is saying a six-year progression, not a five-year. They also rejected all pension and retiree health care proposals, and they want continued substandard pay for CCA and GMCH. I think that's what that one brother was calling in about earlier. Stellantis says six-year progression. Um, they want a six-year progression. Instead of, remember, 90 days is what the UAW is asking for. And also, remember, 90 days is what the progression used to be. I had somebody in the comment section saying, oh, 90 days, isn't that unrealistic? Isn't that crazy? Um, and no, actually, it's not, is the answer. That's what it used to be, and that would be fair. Uh, six-year progression is what Stellantis proposes, rejecting uh, pension and retiree health care proposals uh, and continuing substandard pay at M-O-P-A-R. On wages, the UAW is proposing significant double-digit pay raises to match the salary increases of the big three CEOs to catch up with inflation. Uh, uh, Ford is proposing a 10% increase over four years. Doesn't even make up for past raises wiped out by inflation. Lump sum bonuses that many employees won't even receive. So that's Ford's offer. 10% over four years. That's 2.5% per year. That's insane. GM is proposing the same and a 0% wage increase for GMCH workers at the top of the pay scale and a 2% increase over four years, remember, for CCA employees at the top of the pay scale. It's wild. Stellantis... They're getting a little bit better, but it's still what the UAW calls, quote, deeply inadequate. A 14.5% pay raise over the life of the contract. That's what Stellantis is proposing. On COLA, the cost of living adjustments, and Sean Fain was, was he emphasized this point that all of these uh, companies said, oh, COLA's off the table. We can't do COLA. There's no way we can afford that. And well, now Ford is coming to the table with a COLA proposal. So that tells you that, you know, I mean, you can never believe these companies. They're lying, you know, parasites and leeches and vampires. Uh, but Ford is coming to the table with a uh, COLA formula, but it is deficient. It is not sufficient. Their COLA formula would have provided actually zero wage protection from inflation in 10 of the last 13 years and will provide an estimated 0% wage protection over the next four years. Okay, so there's... So it's basically like this COLA formula that Ford is putting forward is kind of like those disaster health care plans, right? That, it, you know, if you're in a huge accident, you know, you're not going to have to spend more than like $20,000 or something. It'll kick in after $20,000. It's like something like that, right? If inflation hits 20%, okay, well, Ford's going to help you out, but not in any other year. That's not sufficient. GM, 
no COLA, just lump sums that many employees won't receive. Stellantis, no COLA, just lump sums. On profit sharing, UAW wants to increase profit sharing and propose, and Ford is coming forward asking for concessions on their current profit sharing by 20%. Wow. They want a 20% cut in the profit sharing checks that Ford employees get. And remember, Ford is the same company again that increased their dividend payouts by 150%, not by 50%, not by 100%, not double, 150%. They increased dividend payouts by 150%, but they want the employees to take home less of the profits than they already do. GM is also coming forward with a concessionary proposal that would have resulted in a 29% smaller check last year. A 30% smaller check. Stellantis, they're not asking for concessions, but they rejected the profit-sharing proposal. On temps, UAW wants to end the abuse of temporary workers by converting all to full-time employees after 90 days. Uh, proposals uh, from Ford is no path to full-time with meager wage increases for temporary employees to $20 an hour with an 8% cap. $20 an hour uh, is not enough for an auto worker. GM, again, no path to full-time with meager wage increases to 20 an hour. Same thing with Stellantis. No path to full-time with meager wage increases to 20 an hour. Job security. UAW wants to institute that working family protections program that we've been talking about that would say, look, you know, we can strike over plant closures, and if you go ahead with a plant closure, then you got to keep paying us to build our communities. You can't just leave us high and dry after we give years of our life to this company. I mean, think of the in any individual, any single auto manufacturing plant that has hundreds of workers, a thousand workers, every single year that a 1,000 worker plant is in operation, that is a millennia of man hours. That is 1,000 years of human life that this company is taking from the community. And so the idea that you should be able to just on a whim take that away, leave the community behind, that gives you hundreds of years every year is just unconscionable. So Ford's proposal to that is uh, unlimited outsourcing. No, actually, we want to have the unilateral right to outsource any of our work at any time, is what, G is what Ford is saying. GM rejects all of the job security proposals, and so does Stellantis. On work-life balance, the UAW wants a shorter work week, more paid time off, and more holidays. Ford rejects nearly all of quality of life proposals, including Juneteenth, with a meager uh, two weeks of paid parental leave. That's it. That's all they're budging. Uh, GM rejects it, all of it, except for Juneteenth. They're saying, okay, all of this other stuff, not doing, but Juneteenth will give you that. Same thing with Stellantis. Uh, on retirees, the UAW wants an increase to retiree pay. All three are rejecting all increases to retiree pay. So that's where we are um, with, the, uh, uh, with the big three automakers. I mean, just totally insufficient. And uh, like he said, his trash can is uh, overflowing. Overflowing, and so at the end of it, uh, at at the end of his presentation, 
he had this uh, he had this message to say about you know just generally speaking about the state of negotiations and why he does these weekly live streams. Let's play this uh, update from Sean Fain. So there it is. That's what these companies think you're worth. That's what they say about you behind closed doors, meeting with the bargaining committees. And then they go on TV and talk about treating us like family. Tell me, is this how you treat your family? Do you tell your family, good luck living paycheck to paycheck, but I'll keep my $29 million a year? Do you tell your family, go make cars seven days a week, 90 days in a row, so I can buy a second house in Mexico? That's not how I treat my family. So listen, I've heard the nonsense from some big three executives and some of their friends in the media about my foul mouth or theatrics or this or that. I want you all to know something. I don't do these updates because I just want to blow off some steam about insulting proposals. I do these updates because our strength as a union is in our membership. Our strength as working people is in our unity. You all deserve to know what they're saying about you. You all deserve to know what's being negotiated about your future and about your life. I want to be clear. We want a deal. We're ready for a deal. But it's got to be a deal that honors our members' sacrifices and contributions. We aren't going to lay down and take whatever scraps they give us. It's time. It's long past time that we stand up. And we're serious about this deadline, and the companies are serious too. Just yesterday, I saw reports of Ford taking out big loans and prepping scabs to work if we go on strike. They're getting ready, so we're getting ready. If we hit 11.59 p.m. on Thursday without a deal at any of the big three automakers, there will be a strike at all three if need be. In the coming days, we're going to be sharing more with you on that front, but I want all of you to be ready. I've got two words for every big three worker out there listening. Stand up. Be ready to stand up for yourselves, for your families, and for your communities. Be ready to stand up against corporate greed, against management's lies, against distortions in the media. Stand up for what's right. Stand up for what you believe in. And I truly believe, just as a Gallup poll recently showed, when 75% of Americans said they stand with us, I truly believe that all of America will stand with us in this fight. So there we go. Uh, not much movement, and the UAW is getting ready for a strike. 11.59 p.m. Thursday, September 14th is when the contract expires. So we'll see. We'll know by the next episode uh, whether or not there's a strike and um, and we'll be we'll be ready to uh, to cover it and to talk to folks. Um, we already have lined up for overtime next week. Luis Leon to talk about his UIW reporting. He's got some excellent reporting in the prospect. Uh, he went to a rally in Kentucky uh, by UIW members. And so we're going to be talking to him in overtime 
haven't figured out who we're talking to in the main show, uh, but probably going to see if we can't get another UAW member to uh, to talk to us. So, uh, looking forward to to seeing what happens, and looking forward to these people getting everything that they deserve. Um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about today is the uh, back and forth on um, between Trump and Sean Fain. And I've alluded to it throughout the program, but I just wanted to show you because it is so, so ridiculous. The obfuscation and the misdirection about where people, where people need to be pointing their anger, what they need to be upset about. So let's take a look at this first, uh, this first clip from, from Donald Trump that he put out on Twitter last week about the UAW negotiations with the big three. Race and an outrage beyond belief. Auto workers are getting totally ripped off by crooked Joe Biden and also their horrendous leadership because these people are allowing our country to do these electric vehicles that very few people want. That's insane. Like the idea that, oh, you gotta, you know, it's a disgrace what's happening to auto workers. Uh, because of electric vehicles. Like, no, it's not in isolation the idea that electric vehicles are being built. The issue is that they're being built by a lower tier of workers that are undercutting UAW wages. Uh, and that is something that actually he supports. And we'll get to that here in just a second. Um, but yes, it is an issue. There is an issue with the Biden administration in not having enough strings attached to all this money that's going out. And so what has the UAW's response been? They've been calling Biden out on that. They've been saying, if you're going to be subsidizing an industry, you got to make sure that the workers are taken care of. The UAW is one of the only major unions that has not, in fact, endorsed Joe Biden at this point because of that. I don't know if they're going to or not. Maybe they won't. They're not going to endorse Trump, obviously. Uh, but they may not endorse Biden if he doesn't get his act together on these electric vehicles. But it's not them being produced in isolation. It's they need to be produced uh, by people with good paying, high quality jobs. And so that's the issue with the electric vehicles. And, 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 and that's what these, you know, politics poisoned brains are going to. That's what it does to you. You see a conflict between a worker and a company and you think oh who should you vote for in 18 months in 12 months from now this negotiation is going to be long gone contract's going to be long gone it will be decided this week the result of these contract negotiations are going to decide how much these automakers are going to be able to outsource not the election in november and so, but he's not pointing the auto workers towards getting involved in their contract campaign. He's just trying to get them to vote for himself. And so it's, it, there are a few things that make me more mad than politicians using workers as a shield when you know good and damn well they couldn't give a shit about you. And we know that because look at what, look at Trump's record. <laughs> Look at Trump's record, right? Coal miners were on strike for two years. He didn't do anything about it. 
Now he was out of office, but he didn't even so much as try to do what he's doing right now. Trying to make it an issue about Trump versus Biden. I care more about the auto workers than Biden does. Coal miners, a completely a perfect chance for him to come out and do this. Coal miners in Alabama, no less. Coal miners in Alabama that supported him, no less. Couldn't be bothered to talk about it because it's not in the news because he doesn't actually care about people. He just sees whatever's on his TV and he reacts to it like, you know, just not even like a sentient being, like just a, a instinct impulse kind of thing. It's gross. So here's another clip from that video that he pointed out. Let's play that, that he played. Let's let's play this. But there's no such thing as fair transition that destroys over 100,000 auto manufacturing jobs. It'll be much more than that. Waste tens of billions of dollars that should be going to the workers and makes new cars entirely unaffordable for the middle class. That's a transition to hell. You're going to hell and your bosses are leading you right down the tubes. You shouldn't pay your fees. They get these big fees from all of their workers. And it doesn't matter how bad they are, they'll endorse a Democrat, even though the Democrat's selling you down the tubes. Like I said, they haven't endorsed a Democrat yet. They haven't endorsed Joe Biden. And they're not going to unless he earns their endorsement. And he's not talking about, remember, he's not talking about anything about we want to make sure that these electric jobs are good jobs. He's just saying, oh, electric bad, electric bad, electric bad. Obviously, the industry is moving in that way. Whether or not we subsidize it, it doesn't even matter. The industry is going to, the electric car industry is going to continue to make up more of the market share of the auto industry. The question is, are these workers going to be paid well? Are they going to be taken care of? Trump's not even acting like that question is on the table. He's just saying, should we make electric cars or should we not? Who knows? Absolutely crazy. And so let's play this last clip from Trump. So to every auto worker, I stand in total solidarity with you in your fight against Joe Biden's job killing Green New Deal insanity. It's insanity. When I am your president, I will deliver higher wages for auto workers. I will protect your jobs. I will end Joe Biden's catastrophic electric vehicle mandate. And by the way, if you want an electric car, you're going to get it. But you're going to be able to get all other types of cars types of vehicles that you want. And on day one, you're going to be back in business with me, and those factories are going to start opening up again. Remember, when I got elected, I told you all about this in the campaign. And when I got elected, hardly a car company built outside of this country. I stopped it. They didn't go to Mexico anymore. I said, if you go to Mexico, I'm putting a big tariff. You'll make a car, you're going to have a 25% tariff if you send that car back into the United States. I stopped it. Well, right now they're doing it again. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he's just totally bald-faced lying. And, and Fain points that out. Somebody asks him about, you know, this Trump versus Biden stuff uh, on an interview that he's giving. When he's talking about real issues, he's talking about materially what kind of wages are we, are we going to see auto workers get over the next four years? Um, and somebody, uh, somebody asked him this at the end of the interview. So let's play Fain's response. On but it is relevant here. I want to ask you this. Yeah. You guys, I think, have withheld your, your endorsement so far for President Biden in a second term. Um, do you worry? He said, he, you know, I'm super pro-union uh, President Biden. Do you worry 
Uh, and does it go into your thinking that a strike could embarrass President Biden? I don't think a strike would embarrass President Biden. I think uh, a strike can reaffirm to him of where the working class people in this country stand. And, and, you know, it's time for politicians in this country to pick a side. Either you stand for a billionaire class where everybody else gets left behind or you stand for the working class. Uh, the working class people vote, um, you know, and, and as far as our endorsements go, um, you know, as we've said, our endorsements are going to be earned, not freely given, and uh, actions are going to dictate who we endorse. Um, and I know the other candidate, you know, wanted to come out the other day and talk about how our members are crazy for not not backing him. But, uh, you know, there, there's two things I want to talk about with that person real quick, if I can have a moment. It's just I, I'll never forget leading up to the 16 election, that candidate talking about doing a rotation where they need to come to places like Michigan and the Midwest and send our jobs somewhere else where they pay less money and make us be begging for our jobs down the road. Uh, that's not something that works for uh, working class people and sure as hell not for UAW workers. And and he was on the, on the air the other day saying that uh, encouraging people to stop paying union dues. So that's not someone that stands mm. for a good standard of living. Exactly. That's exactly right. And when he mentioned that about, you know, um, Trump supporting getting good paying jobs out of Michigan, that actually kind of shocked me. I was like, usually he'll at least say that, oh, no, I support good, uh, you know, I support good jobs in the United States. And so I looked into it. And uh, and here's what I found back in 2015, um, the Detroit News interviewed Donald Trump. And Trump said that the Ford CEO, Mark Fields, wrote to him explaining the automaker's planned $2.5 billion investment in Mexico and after Trump criticized Ford in June. And here's what Trump suggested to Ford. He was like, okay, look, you know, uh, this is what I think about your plan, and here's, here's something that I would recommend instead. Uh, move jobs out of Michigan into lower-paying states, into lower-wage states. And that's exactly the problem uh, with these companies, right? And the way that they treat Southern workers. And, I mean, the way that they treat Mexican workers, right? They treat Southern workers as the last stop on the way to Mexico. They have no respect for us. They only want to use us to undercut our sisters and brothers in Michigan and Indiana and Ohio and Wisconsin. Right. And it is up to us to stand against the evil billionaires like, uh, you know, the executives and shareholders at Ford and also like Donald Trump, who is suggesting utilizing us to undercut other UAW members, who is suggesting using Southern workers, non-union, presumably Southern workers, to undercut these other people who are making these cars. Uh, so he's so here again, he's not talking about, I want to make good jobs. I want to make sure that everybody's taken care of. Here's a way that you can exploit people and take advantage of people, but you can still tout American-made. I mean, that is just, you know, I mean, wicked kind of stuff, right? And that's the whole issue with Trumpism. There's no actual concern for the people that he's trying to appeal to. 
And that, you know, that that's kind of it in a nutshell. But it also reminded me, you know, when, when I was thinking about Trump's manufacturing record, it did remind me in particular of the carrier factory in Indiana, where he went before the election and said, don't sell your jobs, don't sell your jobs, or don't sell your houses, I'm sorry, don't sell your houses, we're going to keep this plant here. And uh, Indiana and the United States gave $7 million to carrier. More than 600 people were still laid off at that carrier facility in Indiana. In fact, outside of carrier, in Indiana alone, more than 20 manufacturers have moved production to foreign countries since Trump took office. This was an article from 2019 that I'm pulling from. In Indiana alone, more than 20 manufacturers have moved production to foreign countries since Trump took office, resulting in at least 3,000 job losses, according to a trade adjustment assistance filings with the Labor Department. That's about four times as many jobs as Trump, quote-unquote, saved at Carrier, because the issue at Carrier was they were going to close the whole facility, and, uh, and then, um, you know, there you go, I, I saved all your jobs. And he only saved like 50% of the jobs at the Carrier facility. Hundreds of jobs were still shipped to Mexico. While the president kept pledges to reduce regulations, cut corporate taxes, and renegotiate trade agreements, those steps have not resulted in the manufacturing resurgence that he promised. Today, this is in 2019, remember, about 800 workers whose jobs Carrier had planned to send to Mexico remain at the plant, but they are now required to work 8 to 10 hour shifts, 7 days a week. Many haven't had a single day off in more than a month. And this didn't just happen in Indiana. In Michigan, there were 10,200 fewer jobs, fewer manufacturing workers in the state in February of 2020. So this is before the pandemic, remember. There were some articles that tried to talk about, you know, the manufacturing difference. And it included losses from the pandemic. And I didn't think that was really fair. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. So I only took numbers from before the pandemic. There were 10,000 fewer jobs in Michigan in February, 10,000 fewer manufacturing jobs in Michigan in February of 2020 than there were in February of 2019. In Ohio, pre-pandemic, uh, uh, it had 2,200 more workers in February in 2019 than it did in February of 2020. So again, you know, the record, Trump's record manufacturing is not really that good. So... You really got to, uh, you know, the union is the thing that is going to actually get your, uh, uh, that, you know, you're actually going to be able to fight back against these companies and take what you're worth. And somebody asked in the, in the chat, you know, what's to stop these three potato? What's the stop? <laughs> That's a great username. Um, what's to stop these big three uh, from shipping 150,000 jobs overseas? Um, and, and, and then there you go. And the thing that stops that is obviously that costs a lot of money to build all those facilities and other plants. That's why they don't do it immediately, right? If that was, if they could do that, if they could do just ship all of these jobs over to Mexico, they would have already done it. Uh, but you got to think about sunk costs and materials and, and land and all of this kind of stuff that they've already bought. And so, you know, you, you do kind of have to basically gradually do this kind of stuff. And that's why they do it gradually instead of all at once. Uh, is because it would be a huge cost to move everything all at once. And the way that you keep them from doing it gradually is by fighting 
with the workers in the United States and in Canada and in Mexico to make sure that the contract has protections against outsourcing, protections against whipsawing, protections against using workers in lower paying uh, regions against others. That's the way to do that. Not by voting for Trump and not even by voting for Biden. You got to, you got to, uh, you know, you got to do a union about it is the thing. Working Bulldogs is, is a uh, Unifor member from Canada, remember, um, uh, had a, a couple of comments from that person early in the co- earlier in the program. Our contract expires four days after the UAW, the Canada Auto Workers contract does. We're all watching closely, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what y'all do, uh, what y'all do up in Canada. And uh, 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 hopefully, hopefully there is a lot of talk going on between Unifor, uh, the Canadian auto workers, and the UAW. Um, Sean Fain said that there are, so uh, I'm inclined to believe them. Um, so yeah. That's going to be it for us today, folks. Really appreciate everybody's time. Uh, if you have anything to add, you can leave us a voicemail throughout the week, 844-899-TVLR. Um, and uh, I'll um, read through a couple other of these face uh, um, chats before we leave. Uh, Working Bulldog said, I just stumbled across the channel while looking for, U- uh, for updates on the UAW negotiations. Really excited that you found us. Um, Adam said in the chat, Adam is my normal co-host. Like I said, he's at a wedding today, but Adam's in the chat, and he said, uh, we try to have a mix of big-picture labor stuff as well as Alabama and Southern stories. Glad you found us. Indeed, that is, uh, that, that's the thing there. Um, Alex said that they uh, found us through uh, UPS Teamster stuff, and they stayed for the solidarity. Very glad you found us and continue to find our uh, content informative and useful Danny Miller says uh, that was Pence's state uh, Indiana indeed and Pence was the one that orchestrated that seven million dollar deal for Carrier uh, that Carrier ended up taking and using to you know fill the pockets of its executives and shareholders instead of saving jobs right and that's the issue um, uh, Zach Flash our contracts uh, should help lock in factories. Indeed, uh, Zach Flash says UPS Teamster here in Oklahoma, wondering how we can help our UAW's brother, UAW brothers and sisters when all we've got is a retiree chapter. Um, and the thing there is, uh, you know, um, just find the nearest picket line, go and support that. I don't think that they have a strike fund at this time. They might at some point in the future. Sometimes locals will have. Uh, strike funds individually for their own members um, instead of like a national one. So I'm sure that something like that will come up. Uh, but other than that, you know, just uh, trying to figure out where the nearest picket line will be and make plans to go there whenever you can. All right, folks, uh, appreciate everybody's time today. Uh, like I said, uh, going to go ahead and head out. Uh, remember, one week from tomorrow, one week from tomorrow is our first live show at Shenanigans Comedy theater check this out labor talks live we're going to be having local working comedians opening up the show for us stand-up sets um stories from local union members about beating the boss uh some games union beer it's going to be uh it's going to be a good time tvlr.fm slash store to buy tickets twenty dollars for general admission thirty five dollars for vip and uh yeah hopefully see a bunch of y'all there uh thanks for hanging out see you next week see you then y'all